Good evening. Welcome to our midweek Bible study here at the Monroe Church of Christ. Um, you're watching this on a tape delay, as they call it in the industry. Uh, a, uh, we are recording this ahead of time. I normally do midweek studies and our Sunday morning studies live as much as possible, but we're pre-recording uh, for the next few weeks because I will be spending the last two weeks of the month uh, of June in uh, the Wisconsin Christian Youth Camp working a session. And so uh, I have to pre-record those two weeks of lessons and to have the time to do that, I just went ahead and I'm gonna pre-record I don't like having to tape things out of order. So I'm going to pre-record everything leading up to the end of the month of June. Uh, and so from here through the rest of the month, these will be, these will be pre-recorded, but posted at the same time as, as you're accustomed to uh, of our schedule. So uh, let's dive right in here to this midweek study. Just wanted to let you know that ahead of time that uh, I'm recording everything ahead so that I have the time to get it done. Uh, if I try to keep doing live stuff and then pre-recording, I'm going to get mixed up and something's going to get missed, and we just don't want to miss anything with this brilliant study. Uh, brilliant, not, not for my execution of it, but just for how wonderful it is uh, to, to be able to look at these things. A study of how we got the Bible. We're asking that question, where did these things come from, and, uh, and, and how did we get these 66 books in our Bible? Uh, how did they get to be there? Why were they chosen to be there, and what does all of that mean? Well, I want to review a few things. And, and introduce some terminology because it gets confusing. When we talk about ancient writings, we have three things to remember. One is something called autographs. Now, we, that's not a signature of your celebrity of choice. An autograph would have been the original copy of something, okay? An autograph is the original copy. We don't have any autographs of the Bible. We don't, we don't have a letter from Paul that was actually written by Paul, okay? Because those things don't survive. They don't make it for various reasons. Mostly, they just don't hold up that long. What we have a lot of are manuscripts. And as the name might suggest, if you break down those roots, it means handwritten. We have handwritten copies and handwritten copies of handwritten copies of handwritten copies. So the autograph existed. Manuscripts were made of it. Manuscripts throughout the centuries. Now, we do have manuscripts which still exist, and those are called the extant manuscripts, the manuscripts we have. The oldest ones that we have that we use, we have. And so as we, as we talk about this, I don't want this to be a faith-shattering kind of thing because we think of right written word as being kind of written and locked in and we know where it came from and what it means. And I know sometimes when we talk about this, it might bother some of you. It bothers me sometimes. But it doesn't have to be faith-shattering. It can be faith-building because of those manuscripts because we have evidence to track these things back and see that the words we have are the words that they had. But we have to be honest about how it got there. That's how we strengthen our faith. That's how we accept the providence of God in, at work in all of this. So we've talked about the writings of Moses and how those were probably one of many different things that were written about that time. Many accounts were probably given of this time, written by different people uh, for different purposes at different times. Some of those things survived, some didn't. We know that they were written and didn't survive because we don't have them, but they're referenced in Scripture. So in, this, in 622 B.C., along comes the uh, Deuteronomist. We believe that might be Baruch, an associate of Jeremiah. They find a piece of what is now Deuteronomy. Again, remember, they found a manuscript of the law. 
it wasn't whatever was written originally. It wasn't an autograph. It was, it was a manuscript, and they copied it, and they copied it, and they aggregated. Baruch, the, or the Deuteronomist, aggregated, brought together all these other sources of things, things that have since been lost, but brought them in to be a part of what we now call Deuteronomy. So if you go looking for a manuscript of Deuteronomy, you can find them, but go far enough back and you won't because Deuteronomy came into existence when the Deuteronomists put it together from various sources. That's true of uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Kings, and Samuel, and I refer to those as singular because they're own, they are one book. If you look at a, a Hebrew Bible, they're just one book. We split them up because they're on different scrolls, the manuscripts that we have. But that notwithstanding, the Deuteronomist is responsible for those writings. And the redactor, who comes into play after the Babylonian captivity and during collecting the, the continue to collect and write the stories, but then collecting the prophecies that were being written in Egypt, in Babylon, and in Jerusalem, and putting that together. And we have a pretty complete Old Testament by that point in time. We come to the intertestamental period, the rise of the Greeks, and the universalizing, don't know if that's a word, but it is now, uh, universalizing of language. Now we have one language that everyone speaks, Greek. And we uh, develop from that, thanks to Ptolemy II, the Septuagint, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was widely accepted by Jews. It was widely accepted by Christians. We know this because Paul writes from it. When Paul quotes Old Testament scripture in his writings, very often, he's quoting the Septuagint, in fact, exclusively. Uh, because Paul, uh, we know this because in Paul's writings, if we look at the manuscripts, we see that what he's quoting there is in Greek, and we can tell that it comes from a Greek translation because in Hebrew, if you're translating that to Greek, you've got to fill in some gaps, like vowels. They don't have vowels. They don't have vowel sounds. So in order to make it sound like a word that we can pronounce, they've got to put some things in there. They've got to find where the punctuation is. They've got to figure out how these words break up because of how it's written. So in doing that, we can see the diacritical markings and we can see the pronunciations of what Paul's writing. We know it comes from the Septuagint because it matches the Septuagint. So the intertestamental period is where this is happening. This is a time when not, no new things are happening in terms of the story. We don't have a lot of that story. Some Bibles do. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. Uh, some Bibles do have stories from this time. But all of this to say the Spirit is moving. God is working, and he's waiting for the time to be right to come to Jesus. Okay, And that's where we get to the New Testament. So we've, we've talked about how the Old Testament was kind of put together. There will be changes to that we'll talk about in a moment. But now we come to the Gospels. We have four Gospels each written for their own purpose, by their own author, for reasons. Again, we don't have any autographs of it. We have extant manuscripts that are copies of other manuscripts. And we're going to talk about this, how the New Testament was formed. One important thing I want you to understand up front. Uh, our concept of writings and of um, copyright, intellectual property, did not exist back then. They were very comfortable with the fact that someone would write something and put someone else's name on it, or someone would pick up something someone else had written and while copying it down would insert their own things. They were very comfortable with this fact, okay? And they tested these things against their other histories and knowledge and other manuscripts to see that they were true. We'll talk more about that in a minute too. 
I know I keep saying that. It's called a tease in the broadcasting uh, profession, so that keeps you stay tuned, right? Uh, so we have the Gospels, four of them. Three of them are called the Synoptic Gospels. They set out to build a narrative of the story of Jesus Christ and his life. John is very different because he doesn't set out to do that. He sets out to accomplish a different objective. Matthew is writing to Jews. He's talking a lot about genealogy and prophecy and authority. Uh, Mark is very episodic in his writing. Now, we have evidence to suggest that Mark is not really writing his own account. And by the way, Mark, we're talking about John Mark. We're talking about the wealthy North African who had homes and land in Jerusalem and in North Africa. Very important figure in the early church. The Coptic church, Arab Christians, one of the oldest Christian groups in the world, considers John Mark to be their founder. Okay, so we have some evidence that this guy existed. We also have some evidence to suggest he is a scribe for Peter, that Peter is dictating this gospel. The gospel of Mark is very episodic. Think Sherlock Holmes. When the stories of Sherlock Holmes are told, they're told from the perspective of Dr. Watson because he's sitting down saying, oh, I remember this one time we did this. I remember this one time we did that. Uh, th that's why Mark's gospel is so out of order. It's not chronological at all. It's just stories that Peter's telling about what happened. And uh, I want to use this to point something out. I want to use Mark, Luke, and even John to point out this idea that they were comfortable with changes to the story coming about. When Mark's gospel ends, and if you want to turn there, it's chapter 16, it ends uh, very stark and almost in a very dark place. Look at your Bible. Look at Mark chapter 16. Look at... Um, uh, verse 8. And now look at verse 9. Does your Bible put that in italics? Does it set it apart in some way? Mine puts brackets around it. This is to indicate that the earliest manuscripts we find of Mark's gospel do not contain verses 19 through the end of, excuse me, verses 9 through the end of the chapter. Mark's gospel perhaps in its original form, ended with verse 8. That ends with them seeing an empty tomb and running away. That's where it ends. And then the rest of it that is there is wrapped up very, very quickly. Now, does that mean this isn't true? Absolutely not. I believe it is true. I believe it's 100% accurate. I believe that Jesus said those things. I believe someone else finished the story. Early Christians in the first century believed that the return of Christ was literally imminent. He was coming any day now. The story's left unfinished because they're waiting for Jesus to come back so they can write the rest of it. And eventually someone picked up a manuscript and said, I guess I'm going to finish it. And they wrote the rest of it. This, uh, this went on. This happened. Look at John. We're studying John on Sunday mornings. I encourage you to slide on over to YouTube and Facebook and our website, MonroeChurchOfChrist.org. Check that out if you haven't. Look at how John ends. He is, is writing, and then look at what happens in verse 24. This is the Gospel of John, chapter 21. In verse 24, it says, This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things. Okay, now, that means the disciple who's referenced here in this is the one who's writing this. This is a, this is a, a statement of authority, all right? It's, it's a, a statement of authorship. But watch what happens. This is the disciple who's testifying to these things and wrote, it's past tense, 
past tense, wrote these things, and we, change of pronoun, now we have a plural, know that his testimony is true. Perspective changes. That changes the person of that verse. So here John is writing an eyewitness account, and then all of a sudden we have, this is the disciple who's testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Verse 25, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. These two verses seem like they were added after the fact. Probably were. Probably someone picked up a manuscript of the Gospel of John and said, and they at least at that point in time believed that there was with some surety that John actually wrote it, and they tagged this on the end. By the way, you can believe this manuscript because John wrote these things. We believe it. Stamp of approval. This was from him. Pass it along. And someone else says, hey, there are a lot of other things Jesus did because why? Other people were writing about it. We've heard about it. We've read about it. We've passed it along and preserved it through the manuscripting. And they say, so much so that the world couldn't contain all the books that could be written about what Jesus did. Someone else tacked on some words here. That's not faith-shaking. That's faith-affirming. At some point, somebody read the manuscript and decided to add a little bit to the story, to preserve it, to bring it up to date. And we can look back at the manuscripts and verify these things are true. John's gospel, by the way, is totally focused on the deity of Christ, not interested in the biographical sketch. There are stories that are excluded from John's gospel, like the adulterous woman or the woman caught in adultery, uh, things like that. And they totally accepted that blended stories were, were a part of this, were a part of this writing. Look at what Luke writes, by the way. And this is evidence further that there was other writing going on at the time. Everybody was writing about Jesus. And Luke says in chapter 1, verse 1, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of these things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word." It seems fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order. Why? So you can know it's true. Everybody's writing. Everybody's using source material. Eyewitness accounts, other people's writings. Luke, it seems, uses interviews. It seems like he actually talked to Mary. Uh, we, the, in uh, chapter 1, beginning of verse 46, we have the Magnificat, this, this song of Mary. This prayer, uh, Luke's the only one that has that. We think he talked to some of these people because he lets us into things that no one else could know had they not talked to them. Writing was happening all over, and it was being aggregated. It was being used. The, the vast majority of scholars believe that there was some source material that is shared amongst Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew Luke used some of Mark's gospel, and Luke used some of Mark's gospel, and they all use some of someone else's writings. Uh, there's believed that there exists out there somewhere or did exist another document, another writing that served as a central source for the other writers. They call it Q. Um, Q would, 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 is how the scholars refer to that document. Whatever it is, wherever it is, whenever it was, this might have been another source material. But it was accepted at the time that people would blend their stories, that they would take and write and then adopt from others to create a complete story. And it seems very clear from the things written in the Gospels this was true. 
That's kind of how we get the New Testament. All right, what about the rest of the New Testament? Well, let's talk for a minute about what the Bible is and what it isn't. It's not an avatar. We've said that before. That is, it is not a physical representation of God. If, I, if this Bible wears out and I need a new one, I can throw this one away and I have not sinned against God. Um, you, 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 I don't know why you would, but you could light this on fire. And it would not be a sin against God because it's just paper and ink. Okay? Now, if you had evil in your heart and you... Well, okay. But this right here is not a physical representation of God. The, uh, the Muslims believe that their Quran is a physical representation of Allah. If you d- destroy a Quran... Uh, or, or um, deface or disfigure it, you have sinned against Allah. Think about our flag. When we respect our, our flag, we fold it. We don't let it touch the ground. This is to demonstrate a respect for our country, for our veterans and things like that. If you don't like our country, you might burn the flag as a sh- sign of disrespect because in our country, in our culture, our flag is an avatar for our nation and our government more specifically. The Bible is not that. Okay. These are writings. Now, we call it the Word of God. And I know what we mean when we say that, but it's not the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God. That's what John says. What we have here are a collection of writings that direct us to Jesus. What, what happened at the Transfiguration? Do you remember the Transfiguration? They're up on the mountain. Jesus uh, is standing there, and all of a sudden the heavens open, and, a, and there appears Moses and Elijah. Who were Moses and Elijah? You have Moses, the lawgiver. That's the law. And Elijah was the prophet, the law and the prophets. That's what the whole Jewish world centered around, the law and the prophets. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. That's what Jesus said about love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So we have the law and the prophets represented there by Moses and Elijah. Peter gets all excited. He says, we're going to build a build a structure, build temples, build tabernacles for you, and we're going to all just stay up here and just be in the presence of all of this. And a voice comes from heaven and says, this is my son. Listen to him. The law, the prophets, listen to him. The law, the prophets, the gospel writers, the early first century disciple, listen to him. Listen to Jesus. These writings I'm thankful for. I believe them to be inspired. I believe them to be holy. I believe them to be pointing us to Jesus. That's what they're for. If you're not seeing Jesus in what you read in the scriptures, you're reading it wrong. This is about Jesus. So yeah, we call it the word of God. Jesus is the Word. He's the Word of God, John chapter 1. We're reading this to get us to Jesus, okay? And we have to accept that. Our faith will be much deeper when we accept that. This is not just a roadmap or a rule book. This isn't just, you know, this isn't some constitutional uh, law book. This This is our story. And our story has evolved over time. Our story has continued to be written more recently than you might think. Talk about that in a few weeks, okay? Another tease. But I hope you understand what the Bible is, and, and, and to do that will help us to understand how the rest of the New Testament is formed. Because 
the New Testament writers are writing about Jesus and applying his teaching to their specific situation. Paul's writing to the Romans. He's writing to the Galatians. He's writing to the Ephesians. James is writing. John is writing again. Peter is writing. All of these people are writing in an effort to apply Jesus to a specific circumstance. Now, we can learn from that in our circumstance, but always by looking at it through the lens of Christ and his teaching. We have to keep that in mind. To understand what the Bible is, is an important component of understanding how we got it. And that will keep you from being conflicted and tripped up by the fact that somebody wrote the ending of Mark and it wasn't Mark. That's okay because they were bringing the story along. So the Septuagint was formed. We talked about that. So New Testament's written, many, many people writing, um, many people aggregating, like Luke, uh, many people writing on more about the church and about Christ and the application of Christ to the church. Meanwhile, the accepted translation of the, um, excuse me, the accepted translation of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible was the Septuagint. During this time, Jews and Christians had a very close relationship. Uh, Christianity was still considered very much a sect of Judaism. And so they had this close relationship. And they both accepted the Septuagint. Uh, in the early 300s, the Edict of Milan is issued by uh, Constantine, or Constantine, you might call him. Uh, and he issues the Edict of Milan in, th- in I think, 311 A.D. That of made Christianity the official state religion. And he did this to try and consolidate power, okay? Uh, there's a lot of people that think he, oh, he converted, well, maybe later in life, but no, he, he, ex- he made it the official state religion for political expediency, okay? But when he did that, that pushed this divide between Christians and Jews. It drove a wedge. And now, as will happen throughout history that we'll look at later, what one group does, if you're not a fan of that group, you do things in reaction. You want to get as far away from them as you can. So what happened? The Jews reject the Septuagint. No longer is that an acceptable version. They want to go back to the Hebrew, back to the language. And so they go back to the manuscripts. In the early 300s AD, the Jews began a process of rewriting their Bible, their old, what we call the Old Testament, what they call their Holy Scriptures. They began rewriting them and they, they, it, it, rebuilding them in Hebrew and Aramaic. Because again, Hebrew's been lost. More commonly, there's Aramaic, uh, a part of their everyday language, their common language. But they, they, they reject the Septuagint, they go back to their manuscripts, and they begin translating and rewriting uh, the Targums, is what they're called. They're Hebrew and Aramaic translations of the Old Testament, of the Old Testament books, the Jewish writings. This is, uh, develops what we now call the Masoretic Text, the Masoretic text uh, is the basis of the current Hebrew Bible. The current Hebrew Bible is the result of the development of the Masoretic text. Uh, it's very similar, but it is different uh, to the Septuagint. There are fewer separate books. They consolidate some of those. Uh, and they divide the uh, Masoretic text into three basic parts. You have the Torah. Uh, and the Navaim and the Ketuvim. Okay, so you have the Torah, which is the law, 
first five books, uh, for instance, you have the Navaim, which is, is the stories of the kings in Samuel and Chronicles, and then you have the other writings in the Ketuvim. This was developed over thousands of years, okay, a, a, a thousand years, uh, roughly. Ben Asher and Ben Nephtali are two key people in its development, two key translators. It is the basis of the modern Old Testament. Now, why does that matter? Well, it helps you understand how you got your Bible, because we have an Old Testament in our accepted canon in Christianity, uh, and part of how that came to be was through the Masoretic text being developed over this thousand years by people like Ben Asher and Ben Naphtali. Uh, and Christians also took note. They took note of what was going on in the Jewish community. They took a look and began to notice differences in the Targums and in the Greek. And they decided it was time for them to get back to the manuscripts and ensure and improve the accuracy of their books. And this was happening in the 300s AD. So very early in Christian history, in about 300 years after the time of Christ, three to 400 years, they start looking at, at their letters and their books. And this is when we begin to have the first picture of a canon, of, of an accepted range of books. And we'll talk more about that in a future uh, installment. They began looking at their own. They say, well, the Jews are over here and they've been working hard retranslating all of this to get back to a Hebrew text. Maybe we need to go back and look at ours and make sure it says what we think it says. That's important. Christians have always examined their scriptures. We have evidence of this. A North African bishop named Origen made a comparative text of six versions in different languages. Uh, and he made notes alongside it, and it made a translation. Uh, we, we have a fragment of this. We call it the hexapola. It's a fragment of these translations. It's evidence that Christians have always examined their scriptures. We've always gone back. If you want to know if you can trust the Bible, I'll tell you a story in a few weeks. You can trust this because there have always been those who will go back and take a look at those ancient manuscripts and compare them and say, look at this, it matches. We have the words. No other faiths do this. To question the Quran is heresy in Islam. Atheists don't question their faith in atheism. Other faiths don't question their holy documents. Christians always have. We've always gone back and said, is this right? Does this say what it, we think it says? And they go back and look, and oftentimes we found it does. We, we are a very open-minded faith. People don't call us that, but we are, because we've always gone back and, and examined our scriptures, just like the Bereans. That's what it meant when that's written about the Bereans, that they examine the scriptures daily, to see that what they were being told was the truth. We've always done that. Our history, the church's history, is to examine these things and compare them and see what's right. All throughout this time, they're writing letters and books of Scripture and encouragement and quoting them in other places. And we have manuscripts where, uh, that, that were written in the early time that quote, part, in those hundreds of years following Jesus, while they're doing this rewriting and re-examining, and there's other things being written and quoting portions of Scripture, and we have those manuscripts. 
we have those manuscripts. So if, for instance, the entire New Testament just disappeared today, if it all went away, we can reconstruct the entire New Testament except for about 11 verses on the manuscripts that were written in the early years, early centuries of the church's existence that quoted it. We know that they were using the same letters and the same gospels and the same writings then that we have today because they were writing about it. That's amazing. So there were all these other things being written in those early centuries outside of what we have in our 27 uh, book New Testament. There were other things being written and passed around and rewritten and rewritten. And it soon became a question that needed to be answered about which ones of these were considered Scripture. There's a reason for that. Constantine made Christianity the official state religion, but he wasn't around forever, and the next people in line were not always friendly to Christians. And you could be killed for having Scripture in your possession. So they have all these different writings floating around, and it was very important for them to know which ones of these are worth dying for. They had to answer that question. And in answering that question, we begin to see the first early formations of an accepted canon, an accepted collection of writings that we were going to use, the early stages of this. We'll talk about that next time and about all the wonderful things that led up to that and how we got our Bible. What a beautiful, beautiful story it is and how wonderful it is that you can join us for it. Hope to see you next time. Thank you.